0: Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us today as we continue our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Luke. And today we are looking at the birth and the prophecy regarding John the Baptist. Let's start with Luke chapter one, verse 39. And this section I'm entitling prenatal somersaults. In Luke chapter one, verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a city of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, The babe leaped in her womb. And why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leaped for joy. Now, I have a real simple word here for all Christians, all Christians, anybody who goes by the name of Christian, Protestant or Catholic. Democrat or Republican, old or young, any person who calls himself or herself a Christian must recognize that a baby in a mother's womb is not just a thing, it's not a blob, it is a person. And if you want something from Holy Scripture as clear as a bell, here you have The meeting of Elizabeth and Mary, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and as soon as the voice of Mary reaches Elizabeth, it's not just Elizabeth reacting, but the baby in her womb. And so we need to defend all innocent human life, because if a baby in the womb can experience joy, and it says also, we're going to go to another verse— and be filled with the Holy Spirit, we're talking about something profoundly sacred here, the sacredness of human life. There's another verse that actually predicts something going on in Elizabeth's womb about John the Baptist. It says again in Luke chapter 1, but this time verse 15, and he, that is John the Baptist, will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, this verse really messes up my systematic theology. You know, we're supposed to get the Holy Spirit with baptism and confirmation, and and we do, but, you know, the Holy Spirit is sometimes a little larger than our systematic theology, and here, while John the Baptist is in the womb of Elizabeth, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm just just speculating here a little bit, but if you happen to be pregnant and a believer in Jesus, why not pray that your baby would experience the Holy Spirit even in the womb? Just, just something to think about. Then we read a little bit further on in chapter 1 of Luke, a prophecy of Zechariah regarding What's going to happen about this very unusual child? It goes like this. and you child, he's talking about John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. When the day shall dawn upon us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Wow, does this sound fantastic? In other words, John the Baptist was playing a key role to prepare the way for Jesus. And as we're going to conclude today, we're going to see this role really doesn't go away the prophetic ministry of John the Baptist, preparing the way to meet Jesus, preparing us for the knowledge of salvation, preparing us for the forgiveness of sins, preparing us to encounter the tender mercy of our God, preparing us to have the divine light to guide us in a world of darkness and to guide our feet into the way of peace. I mean, what could be better than that? Now, We turn the page a couple of times to Luke chapter three, and it seems that this prophecy has kind of gone off the rails, because we read in Luke chapter three the preaching of John the Baptist. And stay with me, Luke chapter three and verse seven, John the Baptist says to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, you. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath wrath to come? Bear fruits that befit repentance, and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow. Now somebody who is reading the Gospel of Luke kind of carefully, would say, wow, is there a contradiction here? Because in chapter 1, we saw the prophecy regarding John the Baptist, and he would be that messenger of the tender mercy of our God. Then we turn to chapter 3, and he goes, you brood of vipers. But, you know, don't be too quick to toss this out. Because in our day, it's very often forgotten, even by those whose role it is to preach. And I'm not picking on anyone, but teachers, preachers, radio hosts, myself, parents. There's a very easy tendency to think that radical repentance that John the Baptist was saying, like the Jewish people coming to him here in the first century, we has Abraham as our father. That's like saying, oh, my grandmother went to Mass every day of her life. Well, great. How about you? That's not going to get you encountering Jesus. That's not going to get you the knowledge of God. That's not going to get you salvation. Uh, You're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. So, John the Baptist was trying to shake up the complacency, so to speak. You know, today, a lot of well-intended religious leaders and folks and teachers and catechists and youth leaders and moms and dads will say regarding a life that is being characterized by sin, well, don't worry about it. And it being something that the Catholic Church, with her morality that has developed over 2,000 years, says it's a serious sin. And you have to confess these sins, even if you're so ashamed that you're too hesitant to go to confession because you're just loaded with shame, and shame basically comes from somebody other than the Holy Spirit and God, but it's trying to keep you away from confessing that. It's not just okay. That's what John the Baptist was trying to say. And when God sends somebody, a prophet, anointed by the Holy Spirit, even from the womb, because his message is so important to deliver the message of tender mercies. And when it hits our ears and it sounds shocking, the reason it's shocking is because we have grown dull, just like the people that encountered John the Baptist in the first century did. Now, if I was to ask you, here's a quiz, who is the Apostle of Divine Mercy? I'm talking about in the modern world, and I bet a lot of you get this. It's St. Faustina, who lived between 1905 and 1938, who is called the Apostle of Divine Mercy. She was declared a saint by St. John Paul II, and John Paul II also instituted the Feast of Divine Mercy, the Sunday after Easter, also inspired by her life. And you've probably seen the image that she received of Jesus with the rays of divine mercy coming out. In other words, God is so full of divine mercy, and he sent John the Baptist because of his tender mercies. He sent St. Faustina because of his tender mercies. And listen to what she said. This is from her diary. And she wants God, uh, God revealed this to her. It says, let all mankind recognize my unfathomable mercy. It is a sign for the end times. After it will come the day of justice. Now, how many people realize that St. Faustina was greatly motivated for people to encounter the tender mercies of God because there comes a time at the end of time which will be the day of justice. And a lot of people aren't aware that both St. Faustina and St. John Paul II who canonized her were very concerned about the times we are living in. In fact, uh, both pointed that There's a particular need for this at this particular point in time because the end times come after the times of mercy. Now, I'm gonna read from Ralph Martin's great book entitled, The Urgency of the New Evangelization. And he has a couple of sections in here about St. Faustina because a lot of people think today, well, gee, we don't even really need evangelization because, you know what, don't worry about it. Everybody's going to heaven, whatever path you choose, whatever way you live, it seems everybody goes. Well, not necessarily. Now, remember, this is the saint of mercy, and just like John the Baptist, if we read about the tender mercies, we don't quite equate it with the hardcore call to repentance. With St. Faustina, we think, oh, mercy, that means, man, I can get away with anything? Not exactly. In 1936, an angel led her through hell, and she said it was a place of great torture. There was this great sense of a loss of God, and that the consciousness that one's condition in hell will Never change. She spoke of the continual darkness, terrible smell, um, the damned there, and the torture going on. And she mentioned, and remember, this is the saint of divine mercy. She go, says this there are special tortures destined for particular souls. These are the torments of the senses. Each soul, undergoes terrible and indescribable sufferings related to the manner in which it has sinned. I would have died at the very sight of these tortures if the omnipotence of God had not supported me. Again, this is the saint of divine mercy. And then she goes on, I am writing this at the command of God, so that no soul may find an excuse by saying there is no hell or that nobody has ever been there. I, Sister Faustina, by the order of God, have visited the abysses of hell so that I might tell souls about it and testify to its existence. And here's just one P.S. But I noticed one thing, that most of the souls in hell are those who disbelieved that there even is a hell. Sister Faustina, like St. John Paul II, realized that they were preparing the world for the coming of Christ. And today is the day of mercy, but the day of justice comes. And, you know, there's a, um, a real divide going on right now, even in the Catholic Church because there's on the one hand, we wanna be really attractive to people, we wanna attract people to Christ, and that's a good motivation. But in order to do so, the question needs to be asked, is it best to simply pass over sin? And as a result, maybe somebody ends up in hell for all eternity because we just wanna be nice rather than being truthful about God's expectations the way we live. Now let's talk about you, mom and dad. The very last thing that you, you, mom and dad, would want for your children or your spouse or your extended family is to seeing anyone you love ending up in eternity of hell. and it is actually even worse than the description of what I read to you. but it's bad. And here we have the apostle of divine mercy. The one singled out in the Catholic Church for divine mercy, just like John the Baptist proclaiming divine mercy and the urgency to repent and turn from sin. Um, You know, given the day in which we live and given this message of divine mercy, perhaps we should be heading to confession a lot more frequently than we should. Now, somebody might say, well, I don't want to turn my children off from Christianity, so I don't want to mention these hard things that the New Testament talks about or the catechism of the Catholic Church talks about. And I know there's a lot of youth leaders. I don't want to turn my teens away from our youth ministry, so I tread lightly. Now, is this being merciful? Um, is this being merciful? Somebody sent me this. I read it while I was eating lunch today. This is from Fulton Sheen. He said this, people are turning away from Christianity, not because it is too hard, but because it is too soft. I mean, if there really is a God who is holy, holy, holy. And this God has visited the earth. And before we can meet him, we have to be prepared. That's why he sent John the Baptist. And that same God is coming again. It's called the second coming. And it's not just something we kind of refer to during Advent and just regard it as some abstract doctrine that we're supposed to believe. No, it's a reality it's an ultimate reality of life on earth, and after our life is over here and we never know when it's over, we have to be prepared at that moment to meet the living God. Now, I'd like to share with you, because I have an experience in this that was, it was an experiment, honestly, at the time, but it reminds me of my youth ministry in the 1970s. And things were actually going rather crazy back then. Uh, the counterculture, which had been on Catholic, excuse me, the, on college campuses, it was on Catholic campuses too, the counterculture had moved to the middle school years and the high school years, the predominant members of my youth group. And the drug scene was full on. Most of my hospital visitations were the psychiatric wards, uh, particularly from drug use and behavior uh, craziness that resulted in all kinds of psychological breakdowns and such. So here here we are in the mid-1970s. Now, I moved back to my hometown, and I inherited a Sunday school class of about two dozen, maybe three dozen uh, teens. And I wanted to start an actual youth ministry for these, and we want to break it out of a Sunday morning Sunday school class and actually develop a youth ministry. We ended up meeting on on Wednesday evenings. But in town, most of the youth leaders at that time were just totally baffled in how you reach young people. And it's so much like today, because Today, it's kind of going crazy. It's different type of craziness, but it's still crazy. How would a, a youth leader in today's world or in the 1970s reach young people? So a lot of youth ministers were, were trying to kind of ease up on things, so to speak. They dressed mod, and probably a lot of you don't have any idea what I just described, but... Just a real corny form of dress. And, you know, it was like the only person dressing mod were the youth ministers, and they thought it was cool, and the kids thought it was bizarre. But, in any case, they were dressing mod. And, in particular, and this is my point. They weren't being like John the Baptist. They weren't saying because your mom and dad believe in Jesus and follow him faithfully that you'll just ride to heaven your coattails. No, they didn't confront them with the life they were leading and and such, and trying to make sure they would stay in their youth group. And of course, all youth groups were hemorrhaging. So I saw this going on, and I decided I was going to take a little different Here. Rather than trying to kind of water it down and make it easy, because really is Christianity, you know, really something easy? I went to the most liberal college campus bookstore that I could find in our area. And I went into the bookstore, and the clerk was real nice. He saw me kind of looking around, couldn't find what I was looking for. And he said, Can I help you? And I said, Yes. I would like the Red Book. And he goes, just a minute. And he went in the back room and came out with a woman's magazine. I go, no, 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 not that Red Book. I'm talking about, I want Mayo's Red Book. Because I had heard that Mayo had said to young people, you have to be totally and completely dedicated if you wanted to be a communist follower. In fact, I have that red book right in my hand right now, and I read out of the red book. Now, by the way, I don't like communist China to this day, just just so you know, but I wanted to compare, if you wanted to be a red Chinese communist, he said, a communist should be staunch and active looking upon the interest of the revolution as his very life and subordinating his personal interests to those of the revolution. He should be more concerned about the party and the masses, but that's the masses of people, than about any individual and should be more concerned about the party than himself. Only thus can he be considered a communist. And you have to have all of one's energy devoted to wholehearted devotion to the party. And I just said to the teenagers, now that's a red Chinese communist. And if you're not prepared to give a greater commitment to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you better just forget about being a Christian right now because a follower of Jesus is every much and more than what Mayo would want for a red Chinese communist. So what happened to my youth group? Did I go from two dozen to one dozen? We ended up having young people from 85 different churches in, across two counties come to our youth ministry, including streams of young people from Catholic parishes, Protestant churches of every stripe, because Protestant and Catholic youth know something deep, deep down that there's an unvarnished truth regarding Christianity. It's not a game. We don't just uh, overlook sin. We confront it because Jesus, in his tender mercies, will forgive it. But it was so interesting, they were so hungry— for tender mercies. And you see, the guys who thought they're being merciful by dressing up in funny clothes and watering it down, their kids were leaving. And we tried to raise the bar that you needed to be serious about this, and it was very interesting. Um, The kids came from everywhere, and the amazing thing, they brought their friends. They even brought their friends who weren't following Jesus so they could hear about it. And we had Praise music, and then we had at least a half an hour of Bible teaching or longer, longer than your homily that you hear in Mass. And teenagers were coming for this every week. So you see, <laughs> making it Catholicism light, Christianity light, um, it's a desperate, desperate move. If you want to look what happens, and by the way, I'm an expert on this, having been a Protestant pastor, because I saw first hand in the denomination, the mainline Protestant denomination I grew up in and along with the other mainline Protestant churches, they wanted to accommodate themselves to the secular culture. And you know what? They're a shell of their former existence just 50, 60 years ago. No baptisms, no marriages to speak of, no youth to speak of because young people know better. They do know better. And Let me just ask you, mom and dad, because okay, you're going to a good parish, um, but you're looking down the line. You have some younger children, and you know, you should know, (laughs) because I've been emphasizing it a lot. We're talking about over 60% of Catholic youth who attend Mass with their parents and go through the uh, confirmation and First Communion process and everything. About 60% drift away from the faith. So, What would prevent them from drifting away from the faith? Well, one of the polls, and in Sherry Waddell's book, Forming Intentional Disciples, she found that a lot of young people, teens and young adults, don't have any sense of a personal relationship with God. God seems distant. In fact, 40% of Catholics between 18 and 29 weren't even certain it's possible to have a personal relationship with God. Pope Benedict says faith is, above all, a personal, intimate encounter with Jesus, and here it is. This is simple, and it's hard. It's tender mercies, and it's both sides of John the Baptist. If you want to encounter Jesus, you first have to encounter the tender mercies of John the Baptist, who will challenge you and your spouse and your kids and your parish to confess and to repent, and you'll be prepared to meet Jesus. A good, thorough, heartfelt confession. Not playing cafeteria Catholic with picking and choosing what you wanna follow in the moral life or say, hey, I'm better than the people living to the left and right of me in my neighborhood. No, drawing close to Jesus, the voice crying out in the wilderness, that guy who said, repent and bear fruits of repentance, was preparing the way of the Lord to draw close to Jesus. Feeling far away? Pay attention to the tender mercies of John the Baptist. You've been listening to episode 229 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.